broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Hey, Las Vegas, what's happening, everybody? I am Crystal Heath. This is The Frittle Show on KVXL, 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Lots to talk about today. Be sure to join us for Church Sunday, 9.30 or 11.15 if you are here in the city, either living or visiting. We would love to have you with us. If you're not living or visiting but you still want to check it out, visit our website at experienceliberty.com and you can stream our services online there. Farmer's Market this morning here at Liberty. Free stuff for everybody that comes out. I believe that begins at 9 a.m. A little bit sooner if the truck arrives so that we try to beat the heat. So come on out, join us. There's usually a lot of good fruits, vegetables, breads, uh, different things that is brought to you by the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Our friends over at Three Square. And it's free. And it starts, uh, if you're listening to the live morning edition, it starts uh, in just about a little over an hour. So come on out, get your spot in line. Usually, almost always, plenty for everybody. That didn't sound very encouraging, did it? (laughs) There will be plenty for everybody, so come on out. All right, uh, today's program, lots to talk about. We may just, I, we may not even take a break today on the program. We may just power through. So I'm just going to warn you right now, if you are here because you mainly like listening to the music that I play when I take a break and drink water, I don't know if we're going to have music today. I may just take a break and drink water because I don't, I've got a lot of things that I want to say and a limited amount of time in which to say them. So... Here we go. All right, here we go. We're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about guns. We're going to talk about gun control. We're going to talk about what I think is underlying cause of why these things happen. We're going to look at possible solutions that are being presented. We're going to just we're just we're going to go through this thing. All right. So we had the two shootings this weekend. The first in El Paso at the Walmart. I believe the death total is at this point 22. Still several more hospitalized. I think close to 20 remain hospitalized. But uh, the first shooting in El Paso, blatant um, white supremacist, far-right extremist, racist, highly, highly troubled young man who made it his mission to kill as many Mexicans as possible. Like, that's not even... that's. That's not even a conversation. There's not any debate over this. He made this very clear. That was his goal. Uh, just just evil. And many individuals in the media and elsewhere decided to blame the president, the wall, and those on the right who have accurately or inaccurately portrayed the issues surrounding illegal immigration, specifically as it relates to Mexico and our southern border. Now, I've said repeatedly on this program that I believe the president can tend to say things, particularly tweet things, that though there may be truth to them, maybe don't need to be said or presented the way that he sometimes says or presents them. Okay, but we should be able to discuss the illegal immigration issue without it becoming a name-calling fest or a racist thing or an illogical spat on either side. And both sides are illogical and, uh, anyway. Unfortunately, 
That is not how things have always tended to play out. That we can have just a logical grown-up conversation, it more often than not turns into name-calling. So when the finger-pointing started, I understood it. I thought it was misguided, but I understood it. People look for someone to blame, other than the shooter, because it can't just be that individual. Something, no, no, it can't just be that individual. Something must have caused this, uh, because there is no sin, therefore there is no sinner, so there must be another cause. There must have been something that's driving this, not just evil in the heart of man, because we don't believe in evil in the heart of man anymore. And much of that blam, that blam, that, <laughs> wow. Okay, much of that blame landed smack dab on the president due to things that he's said or tweeted in the past, right? Um, and that turned into, you know, all mass shooters are racist, all mass shooters support the president, the president is inciting violence with his hate speech, and on and on and on. Cory Booker was particularly uh, driven by this narrative, and that seemed to be the narrative that would carry the day. Factually inaccurate by and large, but the narrative nonetheless. Until Sunday morning, when we have this second shooting, this time at a bar in Ohio, by an Elizabeth Warren supporter who was not only uh, anti-Second Amendment, he was anti-gun rights, he was pro-Satan, he murdered his sister and attempted to murder his best friend in his efforts, and then the blame game almost stopped. I mean, the inconvenient truth seemed to be that if Trump was to be blamed for the first shooting, then Warren was to be blamed for the second, and if Second Amendment supporters were to be blamed for the first, then Second Amendment opponents would have to be blamed for the second. And suddenly, then the blame game doesn't become so fun to play anymore because there's no single narrative that fits the bill, because now we have two incredibly opposite people driven by what appears to be two incredibly different motives. So what do we look at? Who do we blame? How does this work now? Well, went back as usually happens uh, in following situations like this to where we blame the guns. We blame the NRA. Though the NRA literally had nothing to do with either shooting. Though a gun cannot physically get itself up, take itself somewhere and kill anyone... The blame, by and large, has shifted from the president. It was never really on Elizabeth Warren. We just kind of conveniently left that one out. But aside from Cory Booker, um, who won't even accept the fact that Trump has denounced white nationalism, we've largely shifted blame as it usually ends up being on the gun. Which is remarkable to me. I mean, we never blame cars for uh, traffic accidents. It's always the driver that caused it. But we always blame, we always find a way back to the gun. But this is obviously a problem in our country, and this started me on a long thought process since this past weekend. You know, I've always been a lover of all things history. I consider myself, at least to a degree, uh, a student of the Constitution. I'm an originalist, and I believe that the founders meant what they said. I don't believe the Second Amendment, Amendment had anything at all to do with muskets. It wasn't written for muskets. In fact, I believe the intent was so that the people could legally possess any weaponry possessed by their government. Now, obviously, today, that wouldn't be a great idea to have nukes in the hands of private citizens. I'm not saying our government has them, but they probably do. But neither did our founders have a lack of understanding regarding more advanced 
advanced weaponry. All right, that's just a historical fact. Our founders understood that there were weapons that could rapidly fire and that private citizens could obtain said weapons. And so I've always held that the right to keep and bear arms should not be infringed because that's what our founders said and that's what our founders meant. It's our right. That said, the more I've thought about this, the more I've struggled. Now, don't turn me off just yet. Just give me a chance here. Because all of our rights have limits. Even our current gun rights have limits. We do background checks. We, uh, we do have... Um, an automatic weapons ban since 1986, in fact. So our Second Amendment rights are already limited to a degree. And all of our rights have limitations. Are, are you, you, you have a right to vote, but you can't just vote anywhere, anytime. I'm, I'm, now I'm not turning into a liberal, okay? Just, just follow me. Give me a chance here. I'm just trying to explain the thought process I've been having this week. And I... I believe that to effectively address the gun debate in this country, both sides are going to have to give a little. Neither side will want to give it all, but both eventually will. Now, it'd be easy for me to say that no one needs an AR-15, and maybe we look at banning semi-automatic weapons. But the truth is, the AR-15 is an incredibly accurate self-defense and hunting firearm. Is it needed? No. But you also don't need a car, but it sure is nice to have, isn't it? And just because you don't need something doesn't inherently mean that the government should deny you access to it, particularly if that something is a right our founding fathers held akin to the freedoms of speech, religion, press, and assembly. Not to mention that, quote, assault weapons, unquote, or military-style weapons are utilized in murders of, in just a fraction of gun deaths in our country every year. In fact, 80%... I believe is the number. 80% of gun murders each year are, are, are um, come by handgun. Handguns are the most likely weapon to kill you. Military-style weapons, very unlikely. Criminologist James Allen Fox at Northeastern University estimates that there have been an average of 100 victims killed each year in mass shootings over the past three decades. That's a lot of people. But it is less than 1% of gun homicide victims. And most Americans don't even know that gun homicides have decreased by almost 50% since 1993, paralleling the fall of violent crime in this country. Has an AR-15 ever killed anyone? It's kind of a trick question because no, the gun itself has not killed anyone. Has it been an instrument of death used by murderers? Yes. So have crockpots and knives and axes. And, and if the right gives in on AR-15s and we ban them, then what is it that will need to be banned after the next mass shooting? Because taking away AR-15s uh, from law-abiding citizens won't stop criminals intent on doing evil from committing these atrocities. It might make it harder for them. They will have to get more creative. But removing guns will not stop evil in the world. I mean, just, I, I think it was early this morning or late last night, a man in California, in Southern California, uh, in, in, at a 7-Eleven in Santa Ana, just southeast of Los Angeles, a man 
who police say was, quote, full of anger, unquote, went on a two-hour stabbing and robbery rampage in Southern California, killing four people and wounding two others. With a knife. Am I glad he didn't have a gun? Sure. Could it have been worse? Yes. But evil point is... Sorry. Evil's not going to stop just because we take away guns. And like I said, our, our founding fathers put the right to own a gun on the same level as the right to free speech, the right to free press, the right to assembly, the right to um, freedom of religion, and so on. And so we have all these arguments in, in favor of why individuals in this country, law-abiding citizens, should have the legal right to possess a firearm, whether that be an AR-15 or a handgun or whatever else. And I get all of that. To me, these are logical arguments. They make sense. I'd even argue, yes, they're constitutional. But of course, you know, guys, let's be realistic here. If the government wanted to come for you, your AR-15 isn't going to stop them, all right? But quite frankly, I'm more concerned about general self-defense than the government right now, particularly when the Epoch Times has reported, quote, headline, movie showing elites hunting down Trump supporters slated to hit theaters in September, unquote. This is what the story this is what the story says in the Epoch Times. A movie showing liberals stalking supporters of President Donald Trump is slated to be released in September, but has lost an advertisement on ESPN in the wake of two mass shootings on August 3rd and August 4th. The movie, titled The Hunt, from Universal Pictures, shows people hunting down deplorables, a term failed presidential contender Hillary Clinton used to describe supporters of Trump during the 2016 campaign. Did anyone see what our blank-in-chief just did? One character asks another early in the movie, according to The Hollywood Reporter. At least the hunt's coming up. Nothing better than going out to the manor and slaughtering a dozen deplorables. According to The Reporter, the movie's script features blue state characters choosing to hunt red state characters who expressed pro-life positions or who were deemed racist. So, yeah... You know, I know the AR-15 really isn't going to make a whole lot of difference if the government really wants to come and get me. It's just not. I mean, have you seen our military people? You, your AR, even if you get your whole family together with all your ARs, you may hold them off for a little bit, but you're not going to win. Okay? So, that argument... Uh, but the argument of, I want to be able to protect myself particularly when my views are held as hateful and discriminatory and there is a movie produced by one of the biggest companies in this country, Universal, which depicts blue state characters hunting red state characters who have expressed pro-life positions or who are deemed racist. Now, that's really kind of frightening to me because I express pro-life positions fairly regularly, in fact, and I've been called racist by more than one person. I, it's just a fact. And in the day and age that we live, if you express an opinion 
regardless of what that opinion is, more likely than not at some point you're going to be deemed a racist by someone because the word has lost much of its meaning and has become an insult that we hurl at people with whom we disagree rather than actually defining the actions or behavior or thought process of someone who is in fact racist. And we can have a discussion about that another time. That is not the topic of today's program. My point is I kind of have a problem with you know, someone taking away my guns when things like this are what are being is what is what is being portrayed in Hollywood. Now, that said, there's a but. And some of you are really, really, really not going to like what I'm about to say. There's a time in my life when I would not like what I'm about to say. But I think it needs to be said. So I'm going to say it. John Adams, this is not the controversial part, by the way. <laughs> John Adams is one of my favorite founding fathers. He wrote a letter to the Massachusetts militia on October 11th, 1798. You know, and he tells them, he thanks them for their... For their efforts and then the the core of his letter says this while our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy we shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by providence but should the people of america once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity while it is rioting and rapine and insolence, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, and revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate. To the government of any other. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. I'm going to read part of it again. And then we're going to discuss this. Should the people of America. Once become capable of that deep simulation. Towards one another. And towards foreign nation. Which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance, and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity, while it is rioting and rapine and insolence, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world because we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion." Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. 
our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. I suggest to you that today our culture is neither. Are there still moral and religious people? Yes. But is this how our culture lives and operates? No. Our Constitution, our founding fathers, assumed that the biblical principles on which this country was founded would continue throughout our nation's history, and our Constitution was written to a people who would live by those same principles. Our Constitution was not written with a godless people in mind. Our Constitution was not written for a people who would toss God and the Bible and prayer out of their schools, murder their unborn children, and reject God's design for marriage and the family and the community. Our government is incapable of dealing with human passions unbridled by morality and religion, and our Constitution is inadequate to the governing of said people. And as I've thought long and hard about this, I believe there will be new gun laws coming in probably soon. I believe there will be a lot of changes happening in our country and probably soon. And while I, as a constitutional conservative, believe wholeheartedly that the founders meant what they said and that your right to keep and bear arms shouldn't be infringed, uh, infringed I also recognize that John Adams was correct. Our Constitution cannot be effective if our people are not moral. Our Constitution does not work if we do not have a religious foundation to our country. And the religion that he was talking about is the religion and principles of the Bible. And if you look at our culture today, nearly any aspect of it, though, like I said, there are still good people, our culture, ha our culture has by and large rejected the biblical principles of morality that Adams is referencing. And these mass shootings may very well be the whale that breaks the net, which is our Constitution. Our Constitution can't keep or make people moral. We, can, we, we, we can't argue that if we just keep our Constitution, that will make us strong and good. No, our Constitution works because our people were moral and good. If you take away the morality, if you take away the foundation, the Constitution is incapable of propping up a people who have rejected the principles of God's Word. Uh, John Adams is exactly right. And that is why, you guys, you are going to see changes. You are going to see laws that go beyond what our founders intended in the Constitution because the Constitution isn't capable of governing a people who reject the principles upon which the country was founded. It just won't work. The question then becomes, what law or laws will be the compromise? What laws will be that whale that goes to the net? Because they're coming. Like it or not, they will come. So what will it be? Now, at first, the president seemed to embrace uh, embrace the red flag law concept. And on one hand, I, I really like the concept. It seems like a great idea uh, so that those who, who know you or uh, who, who work with you can essentially put in an alert that prevents you from being able to buy a firearm. On the other hand, the possibilities for a blanket red flag law to be used against law-abiding citizens are so vast that I... It, it, it seems impossible to, to support something like this because a, a GVRO or a gun violence restraining order, uh, in other words, it's something where if your disgruntled neighbor is mad at you for not cutting your grass last week, they could potentially prevent you from buying a firearm for three days, for 10 days, for a week, for a month. 
because they, they call the cops and tell them you're a menace to society. You know, or, or, you know, dads, husbands, don't you want your daughters, your wives to be able to carry a firearm for self-defense? Particularly if they have a stalker. Well, if their stalker's savvy, they can just report your daughter or your wife as being crazy or, or being a threat or a menace. And then she loses that right to carry for three days, ten days, however long it takes for that hearing to where now she has to prove that she is innocent and the burden of, of proof is no longer that someone else proved that she's guilty. No, she has, she, her guilt is assumed. She must prove her innocence. Meanwhile, Stalker knows she is not able to legally possess said firearm in that amount of time. That is scary. Now, I'm not saying that we can't look at red flag laws and that there couldn't be some potential there. But a red, a red flag law would have to have extreme uh, limitations on it to protect the rights of the individual in question. So I, I think the, the potential could be a possibility, but the, the fact that guilt is presumed and it's upon the individual to prove themselves innocent, there would have to be, like, you would have to have a, a government-funded legal representation for the person that's accused. You would have to have a limited timetable I believe very limited timetable for this to be proven. The burden of proof should not rest on the individual because innocence is what we presume in this country. There would have to be hefty punishments for those who would bring false reports. Hefty, hefty punishments. Because there would be real physical danger from savvy stalkers, vengeful exes, nosy neighbors, disgruntled employees, uh, people that think that you've conducted some sort of hate speech against them. That's why uh, something like this would have to have limits because uh, whether you take the gun away or you employ a, a red flag law neither of these things are going to stop a sinner from sinning taking away guns won't bring hope to the hopeless it may put a band-aid on the wound but a band-aid isn't going to do a whole lot of good and what you need is a tourniquet but the president uh, since that initial response has seemed to back away a bit from the red flag law and now they're looking at uh, uh, universal background checks, which, by the way, wouldn't have stopped either of the two most recent shootings because neither of the shooters had anything in their background that would have uh, put something on the FBI database that would have prevented them from buying a firearm. But you know, there's the, the potential to expand universal background checks. We already have background checks, uh, by and large. What, um, what, what federal law does not currently require is that private sellers, like individuals uh, who would um, go to gun, show, gun, gun shows or pawn shops or, or online sites, there are websites where people can, can buy guns or like uh, Craigslist, things like this, background checks would not be required. So that's where they're looking at expanding potentially now background checks. There's the Manchin-Toomey law, which I think would have the best chance of getting through, but I, I don't know that any of these are going to go... And, and and we just, this is where we circle back to every time is blame, put the blame here, blame doesn't stick there, blame the gun. How do we deal with guns? Well, if we get rid of guns, we still have evil, but, you know, we, we have, the Constitution says it's our right. Yeah, but the Constitution was only made for moral and religious people and it's fully incapable of governing any other. That's a hard truth. But it's a truth. See, eventually we have to come back to the fact that 
this is a problem with individuals. This is a lack of morality. Clearly. But is it any wonder that we have young people resorting to this sort of thing when 89% of Generation Z says that they live life without purpose and that life has no purpose. That their lives don't matter, that your life doesn't matter, that life is meaningless. How do we fix the problem? We have to start by valuing life. And so life has to have meaning. And individuals have to focus on what matters. So how do we bring back meaning? How do we bring the focus back to what matters? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. And it goes on. Time to weep, time to laugh, time to dance, time to mourn. Eight verses about there's a time to do this, there's a time to do that. There's a time to do this, there's a time to do that. But the time that you have is limited. And what we spend it on shows what it is that matters to us. See, once upon a time, there weren't video games. There was no social media. There was no television. People had deep, meaningful conversations and relationships because there was literally nothing else to do. So we, lay, we, we by and large, waste our lives on things that don't matter. And then we wonder why this generation thinks life is without meaning. I read a quote earlier this year, and the quote was, I have all the time I need to accomplish what matters most to me. Our time is limited, but we, have, we always have enough time to do what matters most to us. We make the time. There is always time for the thing that matters most. The problem is we don't know what matters most. Young people today think life is meaningless. They don't know what matters. Because their lives are consumed in things that, quite frankly, don't really set them apart. That don't really seem to matter. And by and large, they're not wrong. The problem is we haven't shown them what does matter. I'm not saying you can't go to a movie or play video games or eat at Chick-fil-A or something. But we need to have a conversation about the fact that life has meaning and that you can spend your time doing things that matter. See, in your life, you're going to spend 90% of your life, for the average person, it's going to spend 90% of their life doing things that anybody can do. No special skills required. Sleeping, eating, 
watching TV, going on social media. Think about it. Think about the hours in your day. Break them down. The things that you do in a day. 90% of your life will be spent doing things that anybody can do. There's nothing special about you being able to do these things. There's nothing special about the fact that you can go to sleep and sleep for six, seven, eight hours, three hours, however long you sleep. There's really no, I mean, some people have struggled sleeping, but you, you get my general drift, okay? Sleeping, eating, going on social media, watching TV, playing video games. You don't need any special skills. I mean, you might get further, you might get to level 10, and I can only make it to level 3. But I could sit down and, and push the buttons on the controller too. You'll spend 5% of your life working or, or doing something or some things that other people could do if they had the right training. So like for example... 5% of my life will be spent currently. And this is these are rough estimates, okay? And these aren't mine either. I, I read this in a book sometime last year. I don't remember what book it was, but it was excellent. 5% of my life will be spent doing something that other people could do if they had the proper training. So I run the radio station. Okay. Somebody else could run a radio station. It's not like I'm the only person that's ever done this or could ever do this. No, there's nothing particularly special about the fact that I do this. Anybody with the right training could do what I do. Maybe not anybody. Almost anybody with the right training could do what I do if they're taught how to do it. So now think about that. Spend 90% of your life, the average person, 90% of your life doing things that anybody can do. 5% of your life doing something that with the right training... And the right hard attitude, depending on what your job or ministry is, somebody else could do. So 95% of our lives, the things we spend our time doing, are things that aren't unique or special necessarily to us. Now, I'm not saying they aren't a gift. I'm not saying that God didn't give them to us. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work at them with all our hearts. I'm simply saying that when our young people say life is meaningless and nothing matters, maybe it's because we've spent so much time focusing in on that 95% of our lives. And it seems kind of depressing when in reality this should be liberating to us. Because where God most needs us, where God most uses us, is in that 5% of our lives where no one else can have the impact that we can have. See, 5% of us, 5% of you, 5% of me, 5% of what I do is something that only I can do. It's what God has given me that he hasn't given to anyone else. It's what God has called you to that he hasn't called anyone else. It's the thing that if you didn't do it, no one else would. That is a sweet spot of life. And that is where the crux of our energy and our focus and our meaning comes from. And you know what's in that 5% of your life? It's relationships. There's three kinds of relationships that fall in that 5% where meaning is found. That only you can make a difference in that spot. 
And until we wrap our minds around the fact that though the other 95% we work at with all our heart, soul, we work at it, we do it as unto the Lord, you know, we do a good job. But if we lose sight of that 5% that God has given to us and us alone, that is where we forget that life has meaning and that life matters because it's that 5% that is the relationships which are crucial because that is what God made us for. He made us first for relationship with himself because God knows you like nobody else. And can I say that you know God like nobody else, not in some weird theological way, but in the sense that you know him differently than I know him. Our relationships are different because God has worked with you individually in your life, in every situation of your life, in a different way than he has worked with me in my life. And you know him differently than I know him. And he loves you and he's created you unique and special and for a relationship with him that no one else can have. And he longs to spend time with you. And that is something that falls in the 5% of your life that no one else can have. And secondly, it is your family. God gave you a gift when he placed you in the family that he did. Your friends largely will come and go, but your family will always be your family. That's what my mom always told us growing up. Your friends will be gone, but your brother will be your best friend because he will never be anything but your brother. <laughs> so he will be your best friend, and, and they are. I'm so glad my mom knew that and, and instilled that in us. But your family is always going to be your family, and if you are not the daughter uh, the mother, the brother, the son, the father that God made you to be, then the hole that you leave in your family will cause a hurt and a pain and a damage to God's kingdom, not only for your current family, but potentially for generations. And that doesn't, it doesn't make a difference if your family is, is blended or if your family is broken. You are responsible for your position in that family, no matter what anybody else is doing. And it may sound extreme, but read your Bible. Family relationships make and break entire communities and cities and countries so you have God in that five percent you have your family in that five percent and then you have your friends in your inner circle one of my favorite sayings is that you will be the same person in five years that you are from today aside from the people that you meet and the books that you read do not waste the opportunities that God gives you to make friends and to build deep meaningful friendships because friendships is one of God's greatest gifts so great in fact that God compares our relationship to him our relationship with Christ to that of a friend who sticks closer than a brother your whole five percent in a nutshell right there God your friends your brothers your family but your friends, guys, your family, you have, you have a, a, a gift and an obligation to be able to speak into those people's lives in ways that no one else can. Anybody could come and with the right training run this radio station, but I can have a conversation with people that you can't have a conversation with. I can have a conversation with my brother, with my dad, with my sister, with my mom that you can't have because they aren't in your 5%. They're in my 5%. So I have a different relationship with them than any of you have. And it is people that will always be the core of our 5%. And in our technological world, we have tossed aside true, meaningful relationships for instant gratifications and emojis. God is to be at the center of our lives. He is the, the crux of our 5%. And people, relationships, the family and friends that God has built into our lives comprise the remainder of that 5% of our lives where meaning happens. 
And the reason that our young people think that life doesn't matter is because they've tossed out God and they've lost the ability to have meaningful relationships because they stare at a screen instead of talking to someone in person. It doesn't matter if you're running a radio station. It doesn't matter if you have a ministry. It doesn't matter if you're mixing concrete or driving a school bus. If you lose sight of that 5% of your life, ultimately, your influence will die with you. And your life will not have the meaning that it could have had. My favorite Bible example of this is Samuel. Samuel, one of the best known, most successful prophets of the Old Testament, yeah? What do you know about him, though? Think about it. What do you know about Samuel? We'd argue that he'd be one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, right? Like Moses, Elijah, Samuel. At least he makes the top three. Okay, maybe not the best. Moses pretty much gets that wrong. <laughs> but he makes the top three. But what do you know about Samuel? What do you really know about? Think about it. You probably know that he was the result of Hannah's answered prayer, that he's taken uh, to the tabernacle, and then he grows up with Eli, and then he becomes a great prophet. Why does Samuel become a great prophet? Was that what, what happened that, that he gained that influence? Eli's failure. Eli fails with his sons. Eli's sons are an abomination to the Lord. And so Samuel assumes the mantle of ministry that would have gone to Eli's sons. But Eli lost sight of his 5% and his sons. He did not impact his sons. And Eli and his sons die and their influence dies with them. Eli becomes a footnote to the story of Samuel. And Samuel grows up watching this happen. Samuel grows up in an environment where he sees the results of what happens when someone loses sight of that 5% of their life where God says, this is where you most matter. Eli fails. So we know that about Samuel, right? We know that he was an answered prayer grows up in the synagogue. He hears, hears God vo- he hears God's voice. He runs to Eli. Eli says, and I'll say, here am I. And he talks with God, and God talks to Samuel. Samuel grows up. He becomes a prophet. You don't really know about a lot about Samuel as a prophet, do you? You can't really think of anything. The next thing you can think of, I know this because I had a conversation with Bible students yesterday, and they couldn't think of anything really (laughs) that happened in Samuel's life. Literally nothing besides the fact that he grows up in the tabernacle, and then, bam, he's anointing Saul king. Why is Saul anointed king? First Samuel chapter 8 says it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah and they were judges in Beersheba. 
And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. I'm going to stop there for just a second. Why did the people ask for a king? Because Samuel's sons weren't walking righteously as he did. And it could be that Samuel did invest in his 5% and that his sons simply turned away and that his sons fell away and it wasn't like, you know, their, their evil wasn't to the degree of Eli's sons. But it was enough that the people said, we don't, these guys aren't you, Samuel. We, we'd be better off with a king. But the reason that I think personally, and this is just my theory, but I think Samuel failed in his 5%. I think Samuel lost sight of the fact that that was where he most needed to invest, where that was where he most mattered. Because unlike Eli, who at least acknowledged that his sons were failing, the Bible says that Samuel was grieved, that it displeased him that they said, give us a king to judge us. So he's focused in on the fact that the Israelites are rejecting his sons as judges because they should be judging, not some king. It should be his sons. And what does God say? Or better still, what did the people say? The people said, give us a king to judge us like all the nations. And what is Samuel displeased by? The fact that they said, give us a king to judge us. What did he leave out? Like all the nations. And God responds to Samuel when Samuel prays and says, Hey, this isn't about you. They haven't rejected you. They're rejecting me. You're forgetting the most important part of what they're saying. They said to judge us like all the nations. This isn't about you. I believe that Samuel lost sight of his 5% because it had become all about him and he took it personally. To a degree, he should have, because I think there was some, some failure there as a father. Again, my personal theory. But he's grieved that they say, make us a king to judge us. Not grieved that they say, like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. We don't want God, but that's not. Samuel, as a prophet of God, that is not the part that bugs him. Samuel was grieving the wrong thing. He was grieving that he and his family were being rejected as judges, and God is like, they don't you see? It's not about you, Samuel. Side note, why didn't God go straight to David as king? Because David wasn't a king like all the other nations. When God sends Samuel back to talk to the people, he lists out all the things, that the terrible things that the king's going to do. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. They're going to run before his chariots. They're going to be his horsemen. He's going to take your fields. He's going to take your vineyards. He's going to take the best of everything that you have. He's going he's gonna to tax you. He's going to do all these things. All these things. The king which you have chosen 
It's going to do all these things to you. God uses Samuel to tell the people this again in chapter 12. He says, the king that you have chosen. David was the king that God chose. Saul was the king the people chose. They wanted a king like all the other nations, and that's what God gave them. The king they chose, Saul. And Saul was a direct result of Samuel's failure with his sons. He missed out on his 5%. So when, and then when the people reject him, he misses that they're rejecting God. And when God ultimately rejects Saul, we find Samuel mourning. And it leaves me wondering how different the story of Israel might have been if Samuel hadn't failed in his 5%. See, I don't think Samuel was mourning because he thought Saul was this epic guy. I think his mourning was driven by his regret. His own failure. The failure of his sons. The failure in his 5%. I mean, how many lives would have been saved, both physically and battles that Saul conducted, to spiritually the decay and the idol worship that engulfed the country? How many would have been saved if Samuel's sons had judged and led the people in the ways of God rather than it being Saul, the people's choice, becoming king. I mean, what ministry might Samuel's sons have had if he had succeeded not only in his ministry, but in his ministry, in his 5%? Samuel's sons would have fade into obscurity. You probably didn't even know their names until I told them to you a second ago. We never hear about them, other than that they continued to judge Israel. But Saul never went to them. David never went to them. We have no record of anyone going to the actual judges, the Levites. That are Samuel's sons. We know that Samuel's son Joel had a son named Heman. And he's believed to have written Psalm 88. Read it sometime in context of today. It's, it's kind of sad. But his sons had no influence. Samuel's influence died with him, I believe, because he missed out on the 5%. He, he was, and it's, it's so hard, because it's like, but he's one, of the, he's one of the best ones. How can you say that? Because he anointed Saul king, and Saul was the people's choice, and he was the people's choice because his sons weren't who they were supposed to be. And whose responsibility was it? It was Samuel's responsibility. And Samuel watched this happen with Eli and his sons, and still it repeated itself with him. And his influence dies with him. Because his 5%, what should have mattered most, I think didn't matter most. Because, and, and another reason I think this is because later on, I think it's in chapter 12, you see Samuel rehearsing with the people. Did I ever do this to you? Did I ever do this to you? Did I ever? Did I ever? Did I ever? And the people are like, no, you're pretty good. See, Samuel is back to, it's about him. I never did any of this stuff to you. It, it's not about that, Samuel. Samuel was so focused in on his ministry that he couldn't see the 5% that God most intended for him to work on. When his Samuel rehearses with the people, I never did this, I never did this, I never did this. Never once does he mention his family or his sons and the failure that was there. It's all about him, his work, his quote-unquote ministry, what he missed 
the ministry that was his family, and he couldn't see it. He missed that when he lost sight of that 5% of his life that most mattered because it was unique to him. God could have used somebody else to do the rest, but nobody else was going to be Joel and Abiah's father. That was Samuel's job. That was where he most mattered, and that was where his greatest failure occurred. And we have young people who think that life is meaningless because we have glorified the 95% of our lives that we spend doing things that either anyone could do or anyone with a little bit of training could do. And we've, we've neglected and demoted the 5% of our lives, which is unique to us, which only we can live and only we can accomplish the 5% of our lives that is relationship with God, with our family, and with the people that God has put into our lives to influence. And if we do not focus on that 5% and we elevate the other 95% of our lives, then our life loses meaning. What we do does not have the impact that it could and our influence dies with us. Just like it died with Samuel. One of my favorite Bible verses is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, which says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's the 5% in a nutshell. God at the center, fear God, and keep his commandments. All the commandments of God are related to either A, fearing God, or B, loving your neighbor. And that's why Jesus said the commandments is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Because all the commandments, that is what they relate to. And that is your whole duty. Your whole duty is summed up in just making that 5% of your life the best it can possibly be and cultivating the relationships that God has placed in your life first with himself, then with your family, and then with those that God puts in your life that you can influence your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. People. God, people. That's it. That is the 5% of your life that matters now and that will matter for eternity. And that is where our focus has to be if we expect our young people to understand that life has meaning, we have to stop elevating things that don't matter and start focusing on the things that do. God and the people that he places into our lives. That's it. That's where it's at. And until that happens, we can keep going round and round and round in circles about what is the best way uh, to deal with guns, to deal with violence, to deal with whatever other social ill we may come upon. It all comes back around to if this 5% of people's lives, their relationships were right. That is when, <laughs> that is when you actually deal with with evil because when a person's relationship is right with God and right with those around him or her then 
then you've dealt with the heart problems. And all the problems that we have are heart problems. Because there's sin in this world and in the hearts of men. And until we deal with the sin problem, none of the other problems will go away no matter what legislation we enact. And no matter what country we live in. I guess I have to land this plane and wrap things up. It's been a long little chat. Thanks for sticking with me this whole time. If you did, if you didn't, you don't even know that I'm thanking you right now because you're not here anymore. So for those of you that did, thanks very much. If you missed the beginning of our episode and you're like, I don't know how we got here. That's also understandable. But you can listen to a uh, you can listen to a podcast of this program by visiting iTunes or SoundClouds. Just search for The Frittle Show. It'll be right there. And if you subscribe on iTunes, every time a new episode drops, it'll just come, ding, right to your phone. And I know you don't want to miss out on that. So why don't you just go subscribe on iTunes right now. That's all the time that I have left for today. Appreciate you being here. Hope that you'll join us on Sunday if you're in Las Vegas at Liberty Baptist Church. 9.30 or 11.15 Sunday morning are our service times. 6 p.m. Sunday evening. If you are not visiting the city or living in the city, but you'd still like to be part of our service, you can. Just visit our website at experienceliberty.com. Or if you're on Facebook, go ahead and like us over at Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas. And you can watch a live stream of our service there as well. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place on KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio. Thanks for listening.